Today is Wednesday. It's August 9th, 2023, and now it's 2.40 in the afternoon. Hi, I'm John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. Thanks for finding us again. Share us with your friends. Give us a good review. You can hear portions of this podcast broadcast Saturday night at 8 o'clock, and you can hear me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Burke from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. And I'm Eric Zorn, who's just finishing up the 100th consecutive weekly issue of the Picayune Sentinel newsletter. So that's coming out tomorrow. My, my wife keeps telling me, take a week off, take a week off, for God's sake. And uh, I might now that I've reached the uh, the century mark. So You'll you'll still get paid, right? Because it's free or a subscription model. But if you don't crank out an issue, I don't get a rebate. Do I, Eric? Oh, you will, John, but nobody else will. <laughs> hey, hey you, you know, I got a question to, before we get going um, about the live show that we're thinking about yeah. next month. Is mm-hmm. that going to happen? We, have, we haven't really promoted that yet. No, so. we haven't. And I keep badgering the staff here. I say, we need to talk about the live show we're going to do. It's scheduled to be at Second City. There's some ticketing issues, and they're not ready to sell the tickets yet. So they said, don't promote it because you can't get tickets yet. September 19th at Second City. Austin, you uh, are going to be able to attend, correct? I'll be there. And uh, Eric, I think Brandon and John will join us on stage as well, so it'll be it'll be fun. Just block that off in your calendar, and then we'll let you know when to get how to get tickets because it'll that'll be really fun. Yeah, Last, we haven't done a live show for a year and a half now. I yeah, think, so. we've done a few. They've been well attended, and they've been sufficiently raucous, but also sufficiently uh, like what you're about to hear. The Highland Park shooter. He has a name. I don't use it. It's the junior name of the father. Let's see. The Highland Park shooter is the junior name of the father. Well, he's actually the third, isn't he? And the father is junior. Yeah, the father is junior and the shooter is the third. I, when I write about it, I just say, I mean, I, I mentioned the names, but they are, the, I just say the father and the son because the names are the same, basically. So, yeah. yeah. The Highland Park shooter got the gun that he allegedly used to shoot up the 4th of July 2022 parade in Highland Park with his father's assistance. That's how he got that weapon. And for that, the father could go to jail. Prosecutors have charged the father with seven counts of reckless conduct. He could go to jail for 21 years. Three years before the shooting, which killed seven and injured 48, the father sponsored his son's application for a gun license. Authorities say the son had attempted suicide and had previously threatened family members, things the father should have known, and yet he helped his son get an AR-15. The Lake County State's attorney said parents who help their kids get weapons of war are morally and legally responsible when those kids hurt others with those weapons. The father's asked a judge to dismiss the case. The language in the law around this is too vague, the father says. We will know at the end of this month if there will be a trial, and if there is, it'll start November 6th. Eric, what do you make of this case? Well, one is the fact that he did help his son get this uh, firearm owner's identification card when he when the son was 19, um, and this was you know two and a half, close to three years before the shooting. He filled out a form, and it's not clear to me, I was doing some reading on this earlier, that the Illinois firearms owner identification card application process asks a bunch of questions but I don't think that they the questions that you have to answer on the form and the questions that the father had to verify with an affidavit talk about arrests and commitments and and have you ever been adjudicated as mentally defective? Just for instance, is one of the questions. And it's not clear to me that the father 
lied or the son lied that when you have someone who is behaving erratically the way the son uh, reportedly was or threatening suicide that, that's not on the form so it's unclear to me that the father actually lied to help his son get get the card it's obvious to me that it was really irresponsible for the father to help the son get a gun given what what was known about him but i have also have a question about the fact that the shooting took place when the when the uh, alleged shooter the son was almost 22, was a couple months shy of his 22nd birthday. He had been able to buy a gun legally for himself for 10 months. And I don't know how long one can hold the father responsible when the son is an adult and could easily have bought his own But the gun firearms. that was used in the shooting was the one that the yeah. father helped him get, not one that he went out as an adult and got on his own. Right, right. I mean, and that's, I think, one of the questions is going to be dealt with in, in the at the trial. But the the fact that i mean how long would we would we say that the father is responsible what if the 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 son had kept the gun for five more years and then had moved to carbondale and done a shooting down there would the father still be responsible for the for the adult i mean i think it's a it's an intriguing legal question i and you know i share the the outrage over this shooting and the contempt that i the people have for this father for for allowing this to go on but the kid was an adult. He was uh, he was able to buy his own firearms, and the conduct that's alleged reckless conduct uh, under the law in Illinois. It, it says that a person commits reckless conduct when he or she, by any means lawful or unlawful, recklessly performs an act that causes bodily harm uh, or endangers the safety of another person, or causes great bodily harm or permanent disability. So, so that. Lawful or unlawful. The question, lawful or lawful or unlawful. Right. So the question is going to be whether whether he whether the father caused the shooting in any meaningful way, or whether the shooting would have or could have taken place without the father's intervention. It's not like he was driving a getaway car or or uh, helping him you know go to the the shooting range and and fire into uh, human shaped targets. It, it's it's an interesting question. And again, I don't I have no particular sympathy for this father. But the question of parental responsibility for an adult is one that seems murky to me. And I I don't know where we want to go with that. I think it's really, if you think about that applied broadly, there's some concerning implications. I think where you can more uh, concretely and maybe reasonably discuss uh, uh, liability for gun safety is, for example, if the father had a responsibility to have his guns locked up in a safe, and he had someone who was really unstable in his house and they were able to take those and use them to commit some kind of atrocity. Then you could easily say, you know, similar to a, a product or a manufacturer of a product that has a liability, like you you have a responsibility to sort of keep those away from th- dangerous people in your house. And maybe you have some, uh, there's a very cl- clear direct line of these were under your care and this person was able to take advantage of your negligence. And then a lot of people are hurt because of that. Yeah, I agree with it. Like, I, I really don't understand how... If you if you endorse someone to purchase a firearm, is it what's the statute of limitations? Right, if that's a good question. Twenty years, yeah. twenty years from then, commits a crime with that firearm. Are you liable for that as an individual? That seems really difficult to argue, and, and maybe not the most fair standard to set. Even though, as I agree with Eric, that this father, of course, acted extremely recklessly. That that's it, right? Like, I'm, I'm less worried about the implications of this. I should be, maybe, than I am this case per se. And in this case per se, knowing what we know, which isn't everything, I'm happy to 
um, convict here. You know I don't mean that in the strictest sense of that phrase, but it does seem to me like the father acted recklessly, even if lawfully, and that he should have known his son might have been a danger to himself or others, based on what we understand to be the comments or actions of the son before the shooting. At some point, the parents should have intervened. Like, what are you thinking? I'm not a big fan of, for whatever reason, giving anybody an AR-15, let alone an impressionable 19-year-old. So what I know about this case is maybe maybe it is a dangerous precedent, because really, what is the statute of limitations? When someone's 50, if I bought them the gun, are we going to hold me responsible? Where do you draw that line? But in this case, they're on the wrong side of it. Well, there's that case in Michigan. I think the name is Crumley or something like that, uh, with a with a kid uh, shot up a school, and but he was still a minor. The parents had, I think, bought him ammunition or bought the gun for him or something. And and that's a, that's a fairly clear case to me, where if you have a minor child and you provided that child with a gun, uh, then you're responsible for that. In this case, as soon as as soon as the uh, son turned 21, that's it. The birthday makes a, a difference, it, huh, Eric? I would think so. I mean, really? I, I mean, just as a, as a matter of law, yeah. I mean, well, how, because at some point you have to draw the line somewhere, and that's I think it's kind of where we draw the line. We say he could have gone out on July third. Okay, but what if what if the person? Weapons. What if you knew the person to be mentally deficient, regardless of their age, but you knew they weren't mentally stable? Then the age wouldn't matter so much. It would be the mental makeup of that person, right? The emotional makeup of that person. I would agree, but he doesn't need a sponsor to buy the gun. The question would be, if he comes home, he's an adult child living under your roof, and he comes home with an AR-15, do you have an affirmative duty to do something about that? Do you have to call authorities? Do you have to intervene? And if you don't intervene, is that is that sin of omission uh, something that you should be held criminally liable for. I mean, I you know, it's like it sounds kind of cold. And I, I, I brought this up on Facebook and some people were chiding me for for being really uh, having a cold analytical view of this of this horrible tragedy. But it it, it is a, a larger question. And when we're dealing with a lot, when we're talking about all these, let's say, the, the, the kids in Chicago who go nuts downtown uh, and everyone's saying hold their parents responsible find their parents put their parents in jail let's, you know let's hold the parents responsible you know what what is familial and parental responsibility under the law what should it be and and, that, and that's sort of a larger question that this trial may or may not deal with i think emotions are running so high up in in lake county that they may be able to secure a conviction I don't know that such a conviction will survive an appeal. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in what lawyers have to say about this, because I am not one. Another example of this is how many times do we hear of a person under 18 or underage getting a, in a really reckless car accident that kills friends or family members of other, you know, other families, right? And they're not the ones buying that vehicle. It's probably their parents that sponsored them to buy the car in the first place. And maybe, and they, maybe they even knew that their their kid was reckless and couldn't be trusted with a vehicle like that. But by buying him that vehicle, they caused enormous endangerment to other people driving. Right? What what is the liability for a parent in that situation? I don't. And obviously, there's so much more um, political polarization around the Second Amendment issue than there is on you know car ownership. Yeah, there's a lot of dead people from kids driving recklessly from cars that they didn't buy. Well, and I think that the standard is actually pretty similar in terms of who's responsible for we that. We hold behavior. the adults liable or responsible if there's alcohol involved, right? If you have a party and teenagers drink, mm-hmm. uh, you, the adult, are going to be responsible. God, I remember having that conversation with my kids going, you know what? I'm going to go to jail 
if you guys have a party and bad things happen. I think that was an accurate well, read on that. And there are even dram shop laws that will hold a, a tavern owner or a bartender responsible if they overserve somebody who then goes out and <clears throat> and kills somebody with their car. And if you're a parent, if you're if you're having a party, John, in your in your mansion in Ottawa, and and, and you serve people too much alcohol, yeah. you might be responsible for for what happens to them when they're when they're driving. Well, I, I understand I that to be the case, but I mean, isn't that a parallel to what I'm arguing that the father should be held responsible for the son's actions? You're not responsible if they get in a drunk driving accident two and a half years later, though. That's, that's the difference. Here. <laughs> well, but is I mean, it, okay, it, yeah, but that wouldn't be a consequence of them being at my house that day. It's also like the, the alcohol, I think, is actually a more tangible example. You're you're doing something that is uh, illegal, uh, and that's causing a, a and that that is intoxicating an individual, and that's the, the 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 reason for their action. That would be like in this case, if the father had been giving the son, you know, uh, had been poisoning him with some kind of like uh, uh, a pill that made him act in irrational ways. We're talking about the tool of the destruction, which in this case is a firearm. In, in this example, it's literally the car. Well, if they didn't have a car, this wouldn't have happened. But in fact, the underlying cause is the drunkenness in that case and the mental illness in the case of this son. Is this similar or bears um, consideration if you are the getaway driver or assist in a crime in which a murder was committed? You are held as responsible as the person that pulled the trigger in Illinois. I just bring that up because it seems to me like we do have examples of this sort of tangential complicity, and I'm very interested, like you, Eric, in seeing how this all fleshes out. But but I'll give you this, that I think my enthusiasm for justice here, sending the dad to jail, is a product of my just being so angry and heartbroken about this. That may not be a very good legal standard, right? But that's just where I think the the hearts are of a lot of people on this case. It's hard to be neutral about this thing. It, re- it really is. And I, like I said, I posted this on Facebook and got a lot of really interesting and thoughtful responses, including some calling me a, a cold bastard. So I think that that getaway car example, though, just to highlight that is a really, really good one. So I t- I've, I've spoken with a man on, on the West Side. He now runs, of all things, a yoga studio because he learned yoga in prison. He spent 30 years in prison because he was the guy in the getaway car when a home uh, armed robbery went bad and went south and someone was murdered and he got 30 years. Wow. And he was a young kid who was jumped into a gang and basically got charged for that homicide because of he was he was the getaway car driver. Most people, I mean, you can have different opinions on that, but he is clearly not the one who pulled the trigger on someone uh, and losing their life. And he was treated like someone who was. And I think a lot of people would find that to be unfair. And if you're applying that standard, there are ways that that can be that can have, say, systemically uh, inequitable results when you're holding people liable for the actions of others. I mean, you, you can get charged with this. It's called felony murder. Uh, if you and say you and a, a partner go to rob a store and the store owner gets out a gun and shoots your partner because you're holding up the story and you run away. You can be charged with the murder of your partner uh, who you went into the store with, even though, you know, the store owner is fine. But you, and your partner, who is an armed robber, is dead. You can be charged with first degree murder for that. It's it's an interesting statute and mm-hmm, one that mm-hmm. is very controversial because you end up with situations where someone is really kind of hapless, like the case that, that Austin talked about. I mean, not not doing something good, but certainly not intending to kill anybody and didn't do anything to kill anybody, but but ends up spending a lot of time in prison because of it. So. 
If it goes to trial, it'll be November 6th in the case of the father of the Highland Park shooter. I'm sure we'll revisit this. Yeah, the judge says he's going to rule on a bunch of motions to dismiss on the 28th of August, August. which is uh, about two and a half weeks from now. I also wanted to note that the governor has a bill before him that would ban advertising for guns in Illinois if that marketing is geared to kids, militant groups, or anyone who might use a weapon illegally, which to me could is essentially everybody. I mean, anybody could use a weapon illegally eventually. They want to ban those kinds of ads, particularly ads for a gun like the JR-15, not the AR-15. Kwame Raul is spearheading this, and there's a little junior AR-15 you can get that's small enough that it fits more easily into the hands of a small child it'll shoot a 22 and isn't that adorable they say get him what you got you know if you've got the big gun let's get the junior the little gun and then they'll learn to be responsible goes the thinking this is another one where i don't know if that law is too vague how do you define who the kids the militant groups and the people are that you're trying to shield from this advertising but i don't care Let's ban that, too. I want to yield the floor to my libertarian friend, Austin Berg, on this. I don't care. Hey, Austin, I don't care. So I think this is a really, really interesting case, and it's sort of where the First Amendment and the Second Amendment collide. And there's going to be tons of lawsuits about this. I think there may may have already been one. So I think it's in sitting in front of the governor. I don't think he signed it yet. But That's correct. Has uh, spoken about his intention to sign it. You're basically and there's actually a this is happening more and more in Illinois where the legislature is sort of empowering the attorney general's office to make decisions about what is and isn't, quote, misinformation, for example, uh, when it comes to um, uh, abortion clinics. That's another uh, whole uh, legal debate that's happening right now in Illinois. And you're going to see it again with this because you're essentially deputizing the attorney general to say, John, you just used the word that was in the legislation. What was it? It was essentially that it's it's marketed in a dece- in a way that is appealing to those sorts of groups or that, you know, something of that nature. Targeted and to that kids. Really, that, that can be a really broad standard. And I think in it, that could lead to definite First Amendment concerns. And I think in both standards with the um, the abortion issue and with the Second Amendment issue, these are laws that are easy for lawmakers to pass that actually don't get at the root cause of anything, but do actually raise constitutional concerns. So it's like they sort of get to say, well, we passed something. We want to go after advertisers who no one likes those. And we get to go after um, people who are selling, you know, really kind of despicable sounding things like, you know, for kids. So we're going after them. They're against this. So look, we're doing something about gun safety and gun violence when in fact, it's sort of a lot of a lot of sizzle with no steak. Like I, I, I don't, I can't think of a single incidence in Illinois where someone lost their life due to gun violence that would have been prevented by um, some sort of difference in advertising about guns. Like I don't know about you guys. I live in Chicago. I don't think I have ever seen an advertisement for a gun or a gun store or anything yeah. like that. We, we run one on our radio station, but just one, and that's rare. Well, let's let's be honest. The advertisement for the JR-15 or any gun aimed for children, the, the audience for that is not the child. The child doesn't have the money to buy a gun like that. The, the parents have the money. Okay, the parents think it's cute to But skip that, that, Eric. So, you were, but but there, well, are, well, the, there are promotions and advertising. The, the gun that was, uh, this came up after the Highland Park shooting. We saw some of the kinds of ads 
ads that were targeting young people. It made it look like you were playing a video game, looking through the scope like this is a video game, when in fact it was an ad for either an attachment to or a real gun. I take your point that there certainly are these ads, and they and we saw this with the cigarette companies too, where they were and, and vaping, and they're, they're trying to get kids interested in a fairly early age in, in firearms and smoking and things like that. But the, the question becomes like, what kind of power do you want to give the government to regulate that kind of speech? Because you're going to be you're going to be picking through with a fine tooth comb what words are being used and what images are being used, and it, it as, as Austin says, is this really a problem? Is no. this something that no. the, the WGN doesn't advertise? I don't think the Tribune, the Sun Times. I don't. I mean, there may be ads for gun stores, but but uh, and then the idea that you can't market to extremists or somehow like. Like, where do you draw the line with that? What do you say? Well, wait a minute. This guy's got a white robe on it. It looks like it might be a clan robe or something. I mean, I don't, it just seems like to me, like, is this, is this doing anything? And is it, is it addressing a real problem? And is it going to do anything? And is it just going to end up costing us boatloads of money to <laughs> well, defend this law in court? As I alluded with my sort of derisive, I don't care. I think you, you hit the nail on the head, Eric, that I don't imagine this is going to do a lot of good. Uh, I don't think it's going to do a lot of harm, although, Austin, you got me thinking maybe this will create just a lot of wasted time, taxpayer money, fighting First Amendment issues that we don't need to be fighting, right? It's going to make us feel good, like, yeah, we put the clamp down on that. I do not have in mind an image of an ad for guns targeted to youth. Now, I don't subscribe to gun magazines, so maybe I'm missing a lot that's out there. The the biggest... Advertisement for kids to use guns in popular culture in Illinois is certain kinds of music in Chicago that glorifies the use of those weapons for crimes. Like, and I say that as a fan of some of that music. And I don't think in the in any world is the Illinois legislature coming up with legislation saying we need to really stop these uh, uh, rappers on the south and west sides from talking about gun violence, glorifying it in a way that appeals to children and perpetuates cycles of violence in those communities. Like they would never think that. Instead, I do think it's like a lot of window dressing and something that's going to cost mm-hmm. people a ton of money to def- defend in court. I think you could throw some TV shows and movies in there, too, right? I thought you were going to go there. But Absolutely. Maybe more to the point, the young people listening to music that glorifies gun and gun ownership. Joining us now is Axios reporter Carrie Shepard, who filed a report this week with the headline, How Chicago Carjackings Can Cost Victims. Her neighbor was a victim, and she reported on the incidents of car thefts in our city, but also the personal toll they take. So just tell us your neighbor's story, Carrie, and how you came to know about it. Well, um, I came to know about it uh, very early the next morning after it happened when my husband woke me up and said, "There, do you want the good news or the bad news first? And I said, well, the good news. He said, it's Friday. And I said, <laughs> okay, well, it's only going to go downhill from there then. And then he um, told me the news about our neighbor, Sergio, because they had Sergio and his wife, Karen, had texted us, um, you know, late when it happened. Sergio works at a restaurant, so he gets home from work after midnight often um we have as many people do in the city we it's we live in a three flat and we that means one spot per unit in our garage and they have another car in the garage that we had to park on the street um he was walking back to our building and he immediately noticed 
a car screeched to a halt. These four guys staring at him and he has an instinct to run. And then he notices they have guns and he's like, I'm not going to run because if I run, I'm leading them right in right to where I live. And that's not safe, obviously. So uh, he gave him, you know, he emptied, he threw his wallet, threw his phone, and then they were looking for his car keys. They started going through his pockets when the keys fell out. He said, look, it's down the block. They took off. They didn't beat him up. Well, well, I certainly wouldn't say unharmed. I mean, both he and his wife feel like it was pretty traumatic. Oh, for you know, sure, for as, sure, as for you sure. can understand. One of them, he says, has he told us had a shotgun and hit him on the head with right. the butt of it. Right. Immediately after he had thought, he had told us, I, I don't know. It seemed like maybe it was a plastic shotgun because. If it were a real shotgun, it probably would have knocked me out, and it didn't knock me out. But, you know, it's hard to remember it all. Those are a lot of uh, – everything's happening really fast. They didn't – I mean, they roughed him up. They ripped his They ripped his pants, um, but he was able to get away. He was He was not fighting them, right? He, he was just going along with them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he he's never been robbed before, and he said so, you know, I, I – you know, fight or flight his instinct was at first maybe to run but he as soon as he saw the gun he's like you know oh, that's yeah, it i'm yeah. of course surrendering what i have and i i don't think he was trying to protect his car keys necessarily i think it just was all too fast and they were in his pocket and he just immediately started giving them what he did have ready and available <clears throat> excuse me which was his wallet and his phone we don't hear these kinds of stories as much as it seemed like we did even a couple of years ago. What did your reporting discover about all of this? Well, Monica Ng, my colleague, had reported, um, and I'm sure you've seen the numbers, that actually carjackings are down. Um, car theft is up because the thought being, you know, the uh, Cook County Sheriff's Department told Monica you know, the thought maybe being that some of the um, assailants don't want to add a, you know, a charge of assault. Um, and so they're just making it's easier to just steal the car. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard or covered many times the stories of the Kia boys. You know, there are like TikToks of how you can, you know, literally hotwire a Kia or a Hyundai, I guess. I haven't seen them. I'm not interested in seeing them. But uh, so those are that's a problem. But it's like when we hear homicide numbers are down, right? That means very little to you if you're a victim, right? And so hearing, I, I'm sure it's not much consolation, like, hey, carjackings are, are down. That's not to say the city and the county and the state aren't working on it they have a task force that they put together that they they say recovery rates getting you know getting your car back have been have been improving much like homicides however and something we've all heard for years and years and years clearance rates on these crimes are very low you know it's it's not there's there's so many and maybe they're just not finding the suspects well was it during your neighbor I was saying, did your neighbor get his phone back, or what? What happened with that? Because to me, it's like that's that would be the almost the most traumatic part of it. That that losing your car, usually the car gets recovered, or you got insurance for that. But the phone has so much of your life on it. Yeah. So here's what happened: they took it to the to an impound lot, the a CPD impound lot, 
they finally, after a few weeks, a detective reached out. And the reason it took so long is because the inventory number, they say, had been mixed up with another stolen car. So it was they couldn't find the car. When they did go get the car, there was stuff in there, including the wallets, IDs, credit cards of other victims and people who had been robbed. Oh, wow. Including a woman who lives about two blocks north of us. You wrote about the, the, the financial burden, though, right? Insurance mm-hmm. and a new car and phone. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? So they get, um, they told me that they feel like already they've been out. They're probably out about $3,500. I actually heard from other readers who've had similar experiences who were out even more money than that. Um, they said, my neighbors told me something that actually a reader told me as well of like, I don't want this car back. You know, it's associated with so much trauma and it feels quote unquote dirty. Um, so they, their car is sitting at the, it's still sitting at the body shop because the mechanic doesn't want to touch it until the detective has cleared it all for evidence. He doesn't want his hands on it. Um, so they have a rental car that insurance has covered until tomorrow, actually. Uh, so they are going to have to figure out a way to get around without that. Um, but yeah, the fine, the time they spent trying to call around, um, and the time they've lost at work to, you know, figure all this stuff out. They were driving a stolen car to begin with, weren't they? Then they see this guy, they steal his, so now they jump in another now stolen car. They already had a car. I don't know why you need his car. Maybe. I think it was newer. And then they don't keep them that long. A lot of times they ditch them or they get caught. But I mean, sometimes these cars are stolen for 24 hours, right? Oh, yeah. I would say even less. You know, this woman, this car that they ditched before they jumped Sergio, I mean, they had just just done that, you know, so it's a matter of a few hours. Yeah. I mean, You know, it's their hot cars. They ditch them. What do they want? They find the next one, essentially. The connection between those carjackings and robberies or the vehicle thefts and robberies is really concerning. So you saw on on Sunday, I think, in Bucktown and Logan Square, there was one crew of people in a car that committed 13 robberies in about an hour and a half. In that neighborhood, I think that happened the weekend before that. And the weekend before that, I had a friend who was held up at gunpoint walking in the Mm -hmm. middle of the day in Bucktown, had his stuff taken. Uh, it seems you mentioned this, Carrie, like the clearance rate for this is so low. Like uh, what can you, what, what is a, what can a police force do if say there's like a 90 minute spree in a stolen vehicle and then they ditch the vehicle and leave? Like, obviously that's going to be very difficult to catch those people. Like how are they catching them? If, if at all. Yeah, I think probably, I don't totally know, to be honest, Austin. I mean, I think probably what is happening is, like you said, it's a it's a, it's a group who are doing several thefts, several robberies, and they are, you know, the, there are several people in, in CPD who are experts on, you know, gang crime, or I'm not saying this is necessarily a gang, I have no idea, but, you know, they were able to I think their detective did tell them they were able to connect these guys to other, you know, maybe based on descriptions, whatever, um, to other, to other car thefts. But yeah, I mean, it's like anything, this is not the, they're, that's not the only crime 
that CPD is looking at every night. You know, they that's it's just one thing happening on one block in an enormous city. It really strikes me that the about the only thing that pe- most people carry around that's of, of a lot of value anymore is their phone. And uh, I mean, I don't carry much cash anymore. I mean, I, I, I hardly ever use cash. And as soon as if I my wallet gets taken, it takes me 15 minutes to call the credit card companies and they stop the card and they usually refund any money that's been stolen. So that the, the it seems like it's the phone that's that is motivating a lot of these robberies, right? I mean, what else, what else are they taking? I don't even know that it's objects that are motivating them. You know, I mean, that's the other thing. I, I don't know the psychology of it, but I, I, I think it's just probably associated with so many things, you know, finding something to do. This is the thing they're doing. This is what their friends doing. Friends are doing. All of this stuff is replaceable, which is of course what law enforcement reminds you, you know, in Monica's story, uh, you know, Cook County Sheriff's Department is like, don't forget, like you can get a new phone. And I and I it's I have yet to hear of a victim who's like won't give up. You know, people have been carjacked with a kid in the car, you know, and he, they say like that's a, obviously the first thing you're saying is like, let me get my kid. But um, yeah, I I think and Sergio is the same way. He was by no means thinking, oh, I need to protect my car, you know. Right. His keys, that's the other thing. They had to change, we had to change all of the locks because we don't, none of us feel very comfortable with our keys being out there and access to the building. They know where he lives if they have his wallet. That's another added expense, for example. What was really interesting is you're seeing some of these police districts with these huge spikes in robberies and they're being driven by this. So, and Alderman uh, Daniel Lospada, who represents sort of Bucktown Logan Square area. He sent out an email after the spree of robberies, and he basically said, um, Carrie, you were talking about this earlier, where it's like very little consolation for people to hear, well, like homicides are down 90 percent and this type of crime is down this percent. But in fact, and his email goes on to say, you know, robberies are way, way up in our ward. But in the past 28 days, he says robberies are up 292 percent in the 14th district, 275 percent in the 25th district, 247 percent in the 12th district, 166 percent in the 16th district. Like these really big spikes in this type of crime in very particular areas where guys have clearly figured out, like, we can do this very quickly and get away with this in this part of the city. And he was getting Las Palmas was getting a lot of criticism because in the same email where he talks about, yeah, we're going to have, you know, uh, the patrols are going to be increased, X, Y, Z. And then he goes back to talking about root causes, which was sort of like back to the mayoral race. Like, do we need to reinforce police ranks or do we need to get at root causes of poverty that that caused this this crime? And people were commenting, I thought this was a, a very good thing to ask. Like, well, isn't one of the root causes of this crime the fact that you can commit 13 armed robberies in the middle of the day and you won't be arrested, much less, you know, charged and prosecuted and proven guilty. Like if we can't make the arrests, why would we expect it to to go down? Like that seems like a very important root cause here. I can't speak for La Spada, but I would say that's probably not the root causes he's referring to. I think instead we have a lot of kids. We saw that during the pandemic, they didn't go back to school. So what are they doing? Where are they? Um, uh, and this is a much deeper conversation. I, I hear what you're saying about if there are no consequences, if you not, aren't going to get caught, why wouldn't you? But I, that's not what's driving them to do it in the first place necessarily, which is maybe what Laspada is saying. I'll tell you a story. Here we're 
you know, we're, we're in a gentrified neighborhood, you know, and gentrification, it displaces people. It, um, you get your, we our alley paved and, you know, but our property taxes continue to go up. And something Sergio said is well, for what, if, if things are getting worse, what, what am I getting for this? And anecdotally, another neighbor who has lived in the neighborhood for 35 years, long before either of us, um, said, I'm, don't take this the wrong way. But when the gangs were more prevalent here, this didn't happen because they respected our blocks. I belonged here. I've lived here for 35 years. They weren't going to mess with me. And that stuck with me in the sense of like, clearly we don't want the gang still to be but there is along with gentrification there does feel like fragmentation of community i mean we look out for each other sergio and you know we are close with our immediate neighbors you know we are all bringing in packages we're all watching each other's houses we're babysitting cat sitting dog sitting but it doesn't really extend the whole block and that can make you feel even more vulnerable. I think if you feel like, is anybody looking out, is anyone going to come out if something happens to me? Why am I playing the Jason Aldean song in my head right now? Austin, can you talk a little bit about the incident that your, your, your friend or neighbor went through? You, you, I mean, middle of the day, like Sunday walk in Bucktown again, like pretty Tony wealthy kind of area. And kid gets out of a and, he, and my friend made particular mention to say kid like he could tell by his voice like this is a young kid in a ski mask gets out puts a gun near his head or to his head and says empty your pockets he empties his pockets the kid gets in a car and drives off it was one person didn't think there was two people there um yeah and he calls the cops and it's it's one of those things where, and I don't know if any of you guys do this, but whenever I see reports like this, you go and you think, you go and you look at what time of day and where was it? Because mm-hmm. sometimes that can give you this momentary thing of relief of like, well, I'm not out at 1.30 a.m. This could never happen to me. But like this instance on Sunday and this thing that happened to my friend, it's in the, it's it makes you think twice about doing the most normal and lovely thing about living in a big city, which is just walking around in the middle of the day and kind of exploring where you live. And that's, that's what really sticks with me about it. I'm always looking around any neighbor I had, you you know, it doesn't matter where I am. I just, which is not really the best way to enjoy a city, but right now it seems to be good advice. Was there anybody around or did he expect that it was other people would have witnessed this Austin? No, no, it was sort of like a side street in between two major streets. So it's like, you know, side street with nice homes, um, but no other people walking uh, in the afternoon. And what's anyone going to do? Right. I mean, what's a neighbor on his porch is going to see it. And what is is he going to, Get his gun out. And, no, I mean, I'm just speaking to the brazenness nothing, of it. I'm just wondering, though, yes. it would seem to no, me like that takes – that's some balls. That's some indifference to even uh, – speaking about the the, the criminal, the, the, the guy that's robbing people. Talk about indifference to his own safety and security because he, maybe you'll get caught if people see you. They'll call the police. You'll go to jail. They don't even seem to care. But it does kind of make you think like the alderman said, okay, since we we can't have a cop on every corner 24 hours a day, what are some of these root causes? You know, maybe maybe it's just another reminder that we need to find a way to put out this fire before it gets out of hand. Speaking of of 
other problems in the city. I wanted to ask Carrie about whether the Pedway signage is any better than it was <laughs> when I wrote about it. I wrote about it about uh, five years ago when the Tribune moved over to the Prudential Building. And yeah. uh, Carrie, you, Carrie, you just wrote about your first experience in the Pedway. It was really <laughs> frustrating at the time to find your way around. And I was appalled at how bad the signage was there. This is part of a series we're doing in the at Axios Chicago is that, you know, We've all collectively, my colleagues, Justin Kaufman, Monica and I, Aang and I have all like, what, like 60 plus years of covering Chicago. Monica's been her, here her entire life. And Monica's, and we have this like, kind of never have I ever, and Monica had never been on the Chicago architecture boat tour. And we're like, how is that possible? And she's like, I never have time. I'm always working. And I said, I've never really walked the Pedway. And they thought that was that was nuts. So Justin gave us a tour, kind of, you know, like you're talking about, probably similar to your route, Eric. And it is an interesting world down there. I have to say, <laughs> it's not very clear if you, I mean, even if you know your way around the city, I'm like, tourists don't know north, south, east, west, these like old, and, you know, I just know that there's probably some major characters that hang out in some of those bars that I would be interested in, in seeing. But I don't know if it's something the city is probably willing to take on in their their calls for revitalizing downtown, but it would be worth it, I think. The, the vibe that I got was like, if you don't know your way around down here, you don't belong. Like it's yeah. like a secret, it's like an old secret set of tunnels under the city. It, it's a, it's an incredibly great little network of, of little of little tunnels down there. But but if you don't know where you're going, there's very little in the way of like you know this way to this street, this way to that. And you just gotta you just gotta know what you're doing. And, and that's why um, I never did it. I didn't. I was scared. I didn't want to get lost. <laughs> but even to this day, it's not well marked. If you did want to get from my building to Union Station or or some other store. It's not clear how you do it, right? Oh yeah, totally. That was that's, that was anyway back when back when I was over there. Yeah. Part of the reason for that not having any kind of like cohesive rhyme or reason is that it's privately operated mostly. But it's not like those companies like dug the tunnel, right? Like the city dug it. The why passageways. It's like uh, the great big hallways underneath these buildings that lead one to another, right? Oh, right. So I guess what the the that real estate is owned by those buildings, not the city, huh? Eric, in your piece, you seem to insinuate that it's, yeah, it's just, it's operated by those buildings. And so there's like 50 different pedways, essentially, that just happen to connect to one another. And some parts are nice and some are not. Right. right but they need what they need. They need a pedway authority or so, or a pedway coalition just to just, and it wouldn't cost them that much money to have just a few signs saying, you know, you want to go to Macy's, go this way. You want to go to the Prudential building, right. go this way. I, I, I got totally lost once trying to get from WGN to, to the Tribune offices. It's like four blocks. Yeah. And I, I ended right. up I ended up walking through the through the metro tracks like trying to, you know <laughs> I, I just couldn't figure it out. It's like I just it was insane how bad it, bad it was then. Now, again, this was five years ago, so I haven't walked it since. That's why I was curious. Oh, it's pretty similar. Is. It's pretty similar. You do have to walk on the metro platform. And Austin, to your point, I'm sure the city like CDOT could use some sort of eminent domain. One of my colleagues said today, "Well, never have I ever been on the Ferris wheel at Navy Pier." I'm not sure that's enough of a cultural icon in the city that its absence is remarkable but how about you austin i've never i've never been to Lollapalooza. i've never done the, the bug house square debate some for some reason that's always a thing where it's like oh i should have gone to that like yeah. i've never even been to one of those oh the open house you know every year they do that architecture like yes. open house around the city i've never been to one of those 
Being those around. are fun. I've, I've, I've done all three of those things you just mentioned because I guess I'm more dialed in than you. <laughs> There's my humble brag. I've never been to a Hawks game. Blackhawks game. Oh, that's a You're good kidding. Don't tell, don't tell Hanson. Wow, Eric. You must be going out of your way to not go to a Hawks game. Nobody's thrown a ticket at you or anything? They've offered, yeah. and You I don't, don't want to go. Yeah, hockey's, hockey's not my thing. Yeah, although, you know, if, if John Hanson were to offer me the opportunity to go and maybe sit in a luxury suite and join him and his swell friends there, I would do that. He's the PA announcer but. for the games now. I brought it up on the radio today and said, if you gave me Bears tickets, I wouldn't use it. If you like any sports, you would enjoy a hockey game at United Center, Eric. It's cool. I think it's the best. It might be the best live sport it's so period. fast it is so really those are big dudes going 25 miles an hour with a stick in their hands man it's fun i've never had to get my car out of the that's the one thing everybody's like you go to lower wacker you gotta get your car out of the impound that's a very oh, chicago thing never yes oh that's right we should be thinking about the, the never have i voted twice oh and just one last thing about the pedway you know i spent a lot of time living in minneapolis and working downtown and their that's pedway, what i always hear it's so good right well but it's on the second floor so it's glass and if you get lost you can just look out the windows of the, the the walls of the thing and you can see where you are but it's yeah. clearly marked it's it's people that live and work in downtown minneapolis don't take their coats to work sometimes because you're in your warm car you park maybe wow. underground or in a second and then you get out of your car and you, wherever you have to go you you are insulated downtown it's it's really it's it's terrific it's really well that's done that's the dream yeah. that's why i really want it cuz i despise the cold so much i would that's why i really should be using the pedway for sure well i want to i know what yours is john what's what's your never have i ever me my never have i ever yeah i've been to all of the sports venues uh, I have been to Lollapalooza, although I shouldn't have gone. Um, <laughs> I mean, I got no business being there. I've done the museums. I did Bug House. But, you know, some of this is my work. I mean, my job is taking me yeah, to a lot yeah. of these things. So I, I'm kind of cheating here. I've taken the L to O'Hare once. was very pr- super proud of that. Once? It, it was his driver's day off. <laughs> I'll add something to this in a minute. I'm not going to waste the time right now. I could think of something, but it probably wouldn't be, oh, cool, John, you got to do that. I haven't done Chinatown. I haven't kicked around Chinatown, and I feel bad about that. How does that sound? Oh, man. Yeah, you got to go to Chinatown. Also, one of the city's best parks, Ping Tom Park, is incredible. Really? Yeah, Chinatown for sure. Okay. I've never been to Superdog. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I that's, feel like you know is a big one. So I'm going to have to go to Superdog. Read the signs. I know that's a big not one. been to the yeah. store, no, the shop. I haven't been to Superdog this month. <laughs> I was going to, yeah. Well, I think you're a Northwest Sider, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. a little farther for me, but uh, yeah, Superdog is definitely one of my never have I ever's that I'll check. John, you got to take the blue line more. I know, I know, I know, I trust me. <laughs> hey, Carrie, uh, we wanted you to comment on that. I didn't want to keep you longer than we asked, though, so I'll let you go. We've got thank you. one more topic we're going to do here, but thank you for joining us again, and we really appreciate you jumping in this way. Of course, yeah, thanks, good Carrie. to see you guys. Thank you. you. Bye. In Ohio, all that's been needed to pass a citizen-led ballot initiative was 50%. 
on a on a ballot initiative, you only need a 50 percent plus one vote for something to pass. And Ohio now has on its books some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. In this coming November, a ballot question is set to ask Ohioans if they want to amend the law, giving women and their doctors more control over reproductive decisions. Am I right so far on that, Austin? Fearing that this initiative would pass, Republicans there scheduled a special election asking if the threshold for such measures should be now 60% instead of 50%, which is ironic because in January, Republicans canceled the special August election saying, it's too costly, people don't vote anyway, let's not have a special election in August. Then this thing comes up and they say, oh, not only we should have a special election, but the election should be on whether or not the new threshold should be 60%. And they voted on it in Ohio yesterday and... By a margin of 56.5 to 43.5%, Ohioans said that the threshold for ballot initiatives should be 50%. So, yeah, that's right. So basically, uh, in Illinois, we have a higher standard, right, for passing constitutional amendments, as in most states they do, right? Because, you know, changing the Constitution is a big deal, and the constitutions are generally seen as kind of a bulwark against the, uh, against populism generally, so you want to have maybe a higher standard for changing them, which most states have. In Ohio, if there's a constitutional amendment on the ballot, it's simple majority. It's just like a candidate. If you get um, 50% plus one, it goes through. So, yeah, you had, in this case, Republicans had a very unique, I don't think there had been one in over 100 years, election in August in Ohio, where there was this question on the ballot, and it lost by seven points. And it was kind of seen, the commentary around it is sort of like, well, here again, you have Republicans losing on this life issue. Like we've seen it in so many states over the uh, post row. Um, we've seen this in a lot of states where Republicans are losing this. And even in swing states, like, you know, take Michigan, for example, we saw a similar result or Wisconsin, right? And now we see it here in Ohio. Um, but I do think there's a couple like unique parts of this. One, the proponents the people trying to quote like protect the constitution they were outspent like three to one so i think the opponents of this raised around 15 million dollars versus five million dollars for the people who are trying to raise the threshold right uh yes campaigns in general are more difficult than no campaigns and what was interesting about the polling in ohio on this issue was you had a lot of republicans who ostensibly are pro-life but they were saying no right and they were telling pollsters they were going to vote no at a higher rate than Democrats who said they were, you know, going to vote yes, right? All the Democrats in Ohio were voting yes on this. Republicans, I think there was a lot of confusion. Voting because, yes to keep it at 50%, the threshold. Well, yeah, and, and your question, your clarifying question kind of like uh, uh, illustrates the point, right? Because you're saying, okay, I want to protect the Constitution, so I'll vote no on the constitutional amendment. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. No, I should yeah, vote yes. Right? Right. Like, the yes vote is actually the thing that's making it harder to change the Constitution, so it's like kind of confusing. Uh, and then now in November, you're going to have this very big question in Ohio, and there's going to be two actually interesting ballot questions in Ohio in November. One is to legalize recreational marijuana for people 21 and over, and it's going to a ballot initiative. And then you have this, and I think there's also been a bit of people there. I've seen some commentators on the left spike the football too early on this. Like this is, you know, just another win. And it's in the march forward towards progress. The 
constitutional amendment that's on the ballot in November in Ohio is very, very broad. It's not as simple as you can't pass a heartbeat law in Ohio. It is uh, banning any kind of legislation that, quote, uh, indirectly or directly interferes with the ability to uh, make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions. And what is going to be really interesting to see play out there is that a lot of the opponents are saying that this would ban laws that most voters would agree on, for example, um, parental consent yeah. uh, for abortions for minors. And not only just parental consent, they're also saying that it would ban uh, just parental uh, information. So for parents being informed at all. Uh, and you would see, you know, a lot of voters being uncomfortable with that kind of law being banned by this new constitutional right. So very, very interesting swing state abortion uh, politics happening here. Yeah, I wonder if the if the marijuana referendum is going to bring out more lefty voters. We'll see how that how that goes. The thing that interests me about this is that I fundamentally have a problem with the idea of a constitution being able to be amended by a majority vote because that means that it really constitutional protection is is nothing more than a law that can be changed through uh, a majority vote of a legislature and it's sort of subject to passing whims it's supposed to be difficult to amend a constitution um now pat quinn has for years talked about direct democracy he's tried to you know get Illinois, former Governor Pat Quinn, trying to get Illinois to, to do more of this, uh, of, of governing by referendum. And there's all kinds of cautionary tales about that from around the country. Uh, but I have to say that my feelings on this have changed a little bit over the years, that I used to be really an, an opponent of, of direct democracy. I thought it was really good that it's hard to amend the Constitution in Illinois. But, but I do think that there are a number of really urgent questions that have no chance of ever being subjected to the, the voters because the threshold, because it's just about impossible in, in, in Illinois to get a constitutional refer, uh, constitutional amendment passed. So, so I'm, I'm becoming, I said, ich bin ein Pat Quinner. <laughs> so J- jp pritzker actually so he had a tweet after this happened and he said tonight it's, it's a massive win for democracy that this happened in ohio and he was asked an interesting question today which was like well in illinois it's we have this higher threshold are you saying that illinois should have a lower threshold for passing constitutional amendments and he says no i like it the way it is but the thing in ohio is that this was only on the ballot in the first place this is only being decided in the first place because there was a citizen initiated referenda for this constitutional amendment in November. They got enough signatures to put this question on the ballot. And it's really hard. You have to get like 10% uh, signatures equivalent to 10% of all the voters in the last gubernatorial election to get something on the ballot in Ohio. The Illinois standard is actually pretty similar to that. You have to do it under a, a much smaller time frame, So it's very hard. But the thing in Illinois is you can only ever do that as citizens to amend a very small part of the constitution, which is, I think it's section four, it relates to the structure of state government. So in Illinois, even if we wanted to pass a constitutional amendment like this in Ohio, it would be impossible for voters themselves to even get that on the ballot in the first place. And that's why I thought that was an odd comment from the governor, because I think where uh, Eric, I totally I, I agree. I agree in the sense that it should be hard to amend the Constitution, but it should be easy to get it to voters to decide. And it's almost impossible to even get it to voters in the first place in Illinois. Yeah, like for instance, the fair tax amendment, which which uh, Austin and I debated 
couple of years ago, uh, was the result of a legislative initiative. It wasn't, it wasn't citizens. You had to get, uh, was it is a supermajority of legislators have to yeah, vote? Supermajority of on the ballot. It's really hard. And, and, you know, the U.S. Constitution is also almost impossible to uh, amend. There have been, I mean, obviously 20, what, 27 amendments over the course of time, but it's been, it's, been generations since there's been a constitutional amendment now. Uh, and I think for the most part, that's good. Uh, on the state level, it, it feels to me like it's it's a little too hard in Illinois. I, I'm, I'm coming around to that to that point of view. And, and like, if, if, I think that if you make the point, if you make the general argument in Ohio that maybe you should have a 60 percent threshold for voters to amend the Constitution, that seems like a sound argument. The fact that it was so cynically uh, brought up here that, was, that they wanted to change the rules of the game while the game was even being played uh, makes me really glad for the result. I don't think that they're going to get 60% approval for their uh, amendment, for the referendum amendment in November, but they're, they're, the polling that I've seen has shown that it's about 57% uh, in favor of, ex- of expanding or enshrining abortion rights, at least until the next majority vote comes along and changes it. Well, if the law had not been so severe, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Maybe they shouldn't have made it so draconian six weeks. Maybe something this fundamental, the people of Ohio should be able to do something that the people of Ohio want to do. The polling did support what's behind this drive, right, Austin? Don't the people in Austin want more access to or control over reproductive rights? Definitely. Um, And I think that is why you sort of saw this result. But at the same time, the uncertainty of what like a constitutional amendment can can have consequences beyond just we're going to get rid of this heartbeat law, right? It, it, it really at its core is a ban on certain types of legislation. So to the extent that it's a ban on certain types of legislation that people would want, that's going to be kind of at the heart of the debate there. Okay, guys, that's all the time we've got for the podcast today. Remember, today is Wednesday. If you're listening to this before this Saturday, you might want to hear Eric Zorn's son's band, the uh, Red Valley Rangers, the River Valley Rangers. What is the name of the band again? The the River Valley Rangers. The River Valley Rangers. They're going to be on the St. Genevieve River boat leaving Ottawa Saturday at 7. And it's a very lovely time, and boy, is it a good band. So take advantage of that. Austin, thanks for your time today, particularly as you're in the midst of a move, and uh, Eric Zorn as well. It was nice to hear from Carrie Shepard, too. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another pot on you next week. Okay, guys. See you guys. I'll let it that other stuff Have fun on the boat. Yep. Scram. Later. Yep. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 